Artificial intelligence will completely transform our world. But what is AI? Why will it affect you? And how can you and your business survive and thrive through the AI revolution? Welcome to AI and You. Here is your host, author, speaker, and futurist, Peter Scott. Welcome to episode 56. Today's guest is Przemek Hoyetsky. He is an AI entrepreneur with a PhD in mathematics and a member of the Forbes 30 under 30 list in Poland. He did his PhD in Paris at Université Pierre-Marie Curie, then became a research fellow and a lecturer at the University of Oxford. After returning to Poland, he co-founded multiple AI ventures ranging from logistics to the fashion market. And I invited him to the show so you could hear the experience of someone originating from academia who decided to jump to the commercial space, why they did that and what happened. Right now, he focuses on Contentize, a platform that enables people to create and manipulate text content in all kinds of smart ways driven by AI. He has a new book, Artificial Intelligence Business, How You Can Profit from AI, and there's a link to it in the show notes and transcript. We're going to talk about how some of today's AI that deals in text really works and what you can do with it. You'll hear Bzemek mention the term DeFi a couple of times. That stands for Decentralized Finance, which is a new paradigm of conducting financial transactions using a decentralized mechanism like blockchain to cut out the traditional financial mega-institutions. Here we go with the interview. Jemek, welcome to Artificial Intelligence and you. Thank you for the invitation. Happy to be here. Now, you have a PhD in this field. What was your PhD thesis about? Yeah, so, so my PhD thesis was called Piatic Langlands Correspondence and Geometry, and it was on the verge of algebraic geometry and number theory. So pure mathematics. Pure mathematics. Pure yeah, mathematics. Very pure. And now you're an entrepreneur in artificial intelligence. Now, that's not a jump that a lot of people make. A lot of people stay within the orbit of academia, especially in pure mathematics, because, heck, that word pure has got a lot going for it, right? Who wants to become impure after that? Yeah, exactly. So what was it that attracted you to AI and the commercial sector? Yeah, sure. So there are a couple of things, I guess. So first of all, switching from mathematics to machine learning wasn't that hard because in the end, like machine learning is very mathematical and making that jump wasn't that hard. But much harder was actually going from academia to business in the end. And that took me many years of growing frustration with the academic world to really make the switch. So the main reason for me was that I really like to have faster feedback loops and I want to have more impact. And what I mean by that is when I put my mind to something, I like to see uh, some kind of interaction and like results coming faster. And in the academic world, especially in pure mathematics, this feedback loop is super slow. Of course, it's understandable. We're like solving hard problems and the whole process of publishing a paper, going through the review, peer review of that, going to the conference and so on is... It's understandable, but it's definitely, in the end, I decided that it's not something for me. And I don't see myself doing that thing for the next 40 years with the same group of people. Because in the end, those were like great people, but being constrained to this group of 200 people that 
you see at each conference around the world. It's not something that I wanted to continue uh, for the rest of my life. And that was the primary motivation. So I really had a lot of fun with mathematics. I had a lot of great friends, but I needed to say stop at a certain point because I knew that I would be super unhappy if I were to go on with that for the rest of my life. And the natural point was that after I went to Oxford, I wanted to come back to Poland and see how the things changed because I was like seven years abroad altogether, five years in Paris, two years in Oxford. And after coming back to Poland, I decided that actually it's a great time to go into this entrepreneurial path and risk a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that was a great choice. Like there was like many ups and downs along the way, but being again in my home country, in a place where I was born, that gave me a lot of motivation to make this switch. That would be much harder to do if I were to stay in the UK or go to the US because I was thinking about that as well. And that's an interesting point. I want to pick up on that a moment because a lot of people in the UK and especially the US would think that their environment was the one that was most conducive to entrepreneurialism. But here you appear to be contradicting that. And what's your experience been? Yeah, to be honest, that was purely because I knew the environment in Poland. So it was coming from academia where I don't know anything about the business world and going into business. So establishing my first company that actually seemed much easier to do for me in Poland, in a country that I know of. Right now, what I'm doing, especially with Contentize, because Contentize is established in the UK. But I would never start with establishing a company in the UK in the first place because I wasn't confident in my entrepreneurial skills when I was starting. So I wanted to start like with the easiest possible thing. And the, from my perspective, the easiest thing would be try that in Poland because if I right. fail there, the, nothing happens. Understood. So you went in search of faster feedback loops. How did those show up? What's some examples of how you were satisfied by your move into the commercial sector with the opportunities that came to you? Yeah, sure. So there are many examples because especially like, for example, building content ties recently or before that, building like other startups. I just had experience with real customers who can tell you right away whether something is working, something is not working. So you don't have the space of sitting for years over like the single idea and like thinking whether that would work or not. And in the end, it might not work. With especially building actual products, it's much faster. And this is the thing that I like. Be that building the SaaS product, be that consulting for a client, you get the feedback right away in a matter of days or weeks and not Mm. months or years. And what sort of things have you done for those customers? So I started my entrepreneurial journey basically with doing consulting. So helping people either with the algorithm themselves, so like starting with NLP techniques and then going more into helping them hire people. So being present during the interviews, asking hard questions about mathematical stuff and so on. So I started not building for myself, but rather helping others. And then I spent basically one year after academia consulting for other businesses. And then I decided that I actually want to build my own products because that gives me even more freedom and I can really do something on my own. Now, you've got quite a YouTube presence, uh, talks about different aspects of AI that something quite technical. What is it about that that appeals to you to want to get out there and, and have your face on video telling people about this? Yeah, sure. Uh, So I started YouTube basically out of curiosity, whether I can do it, because like I start many products just like that. And at some point, I just started focusing on the things that I enjoy the most. So my channel is mostly about 
online education. And so especially like there are many things like I love online education. I think it's like a great way going forward. And I talk about various language models. So I think like the most technical things are about um, different transformers, like the GPT-3 and those kind of models, because this is what interests me the most, because this is what we use at Contentize. Right. Now, GPT-3 is very hot. Well, GPT-2 was hot, but GPT-3 has really gone past that. So you say you're using that at your company, Contentize. Is that right? Uh, not really. So we have access to GPT-3, but actually we're using a modified version of GPT-Neo. So GPT-Neo is the open source version of GPT-3 that appeared very recently. And we have taken that, we have rewritten that to make it much faster, and we're using that. And the reason for doing that is we want to have more control over the models, because if you're just uh, using GPT-3, then you're basically dependent on the API, you're dependent on the pricing model of OpenAI, and you can't really fine-tune those models that well. You can't fine-tune GPT-3. And what do you use that for? Uh, so, so basically, the goal with Contentize is to make writing as easy as possible. So right now, 80% of our users, we have over 4,000 users right now, 80% has marketing background. So those people are writing blog posts, copywriters, SEO experts, people from the marketing agencies, bloggers, and they all have the need to write content regularly. So they need to write a blog post. And we want to help them with that. Maybe you can help me understand something about GPT-2, GPT-3 here, because we've talked about this family of them. And I know that they're trained on a huge amount of data on the internet. Is the GPT-3 engine the algorithm plus that data, plus the result of training it? Or is it talking about the engine itself? Usually I think of a program as being distinct from the data that it processes, and you can process different types of data with it. But in GPT-3, it seems that the program is the data. Help me make that distinction. Yeah, sure. No, no, so actually that question is very valid. So maybe I can start with this. So actually GPT-2 and GPT-3 are the same models. If you look at the architecture, so how the neural networks actually look like, they're pretty much the same. The only difference is the amount of data that OpenAI researchers have put into those models. And that's the only difference, which means that the data part is really important here. It's not only about the architecture, it's also about the computing power that you give to those models and the data that you give to those models. Okay. Is there, are there different versions of GPT-3 that have been fed different data? Kind of, because what you do is basically you feed the same data, but then you have what's really the crucial condition here is the number of parameters and you can have more or less parameters. And those parameters are basically changing based on training them on this data. So you can think about that as like reading those texts. And the more parameters you have, the more subtle those models will be. Right. So there are like different versions of GPT-3 based on how many parameters there are. But there's still using the same data, The same data, right? exactly. Is that all languages or is it just English? It's primarily English. So the training set, how actually OpenAI got it, was scraping the internet and following various links on Reddit, which means that even though they were looking for English tags, there are occasional tags from like French, German, and other languages. And apparently that was enough for OpenAI, for GPT-3 to learn other languages as well. So it doesn't write as well in German as it does in English, but it can well translate English to German, German to French, and so on. Right. So is the hard work, the value proposition, if you will, of GPT-3, is it the algorithm? Is it the 
size of the hardware that processes this? Is it the data that it's given or is it the handholding that it is given in order to process that data? Because where I'm going with this is I'm saying, well, why not take that and feed it Mandarin Cantonese? Now you have something that could do those same things in that language. Yeah, sure. So basically all three things are valid here and are important. So let me talk about that like one by one so it will probably clear. So regarding the architecture of those neural networks, this is something called transformers, and it came before OpenAI. It was like created a couple of years ago. Uh, they just have taken that and created a very specific transformer for their needs. This is public, like how the transformer in the GPT-2, GPT-3 case look like. So you can take that, you can try to improve on that as well. And the difference between GPT-2 and GPT-3 is not in this architecture, actually. So this was not the case. Then the second thing you can take is the data itself. So here what counts is really the amount of the quality of data you can get. It's, of course, in uh, gigabytes and terabytes of like how much data you will download from the internet of different articles on different domains. And there's like different questions of like, how clean is this data? Meaning like how well those texts are prepared or like whether they really cover all different subjects for the machine to learn how the language operates and so on. So if you were to go for Cantonese, then you would have to prepare this kind of data. And I guess it would be Maybe I don't know enough about the Chinese internet to really answer that question. I would guess that probably it's not that hard because like Chinese internet is probably pretty developed. But then comes the third thing. So once you have the data and once you have the machine learning model, this transformer, then you have to train this neural network on data. And that when it gets complicated because actually to really train this huge model, by huge I mean there's like billions of parameters within the model, and then you have uh, gigabytes and terabytes of data, then you actually need a lot of computing power. And that's where it really gets complicated because by rough estimates, OpenAI has spent something like $10 million just on training the models, so just on the computing power. So that's actually the most problematic thing here right now is that if you're like a smaller company or like if you're like a group of researchers, like an individual researcher, then you can't really improve on that because you don't have the access to those kind of computing power. Right. But plenty of companies in China and the Chinese government would, that would be trivial yep. for them. And so there must be some interest there in taking a model like that and training it up on that kind of data. That's I'm sure it's done. Yeah, to be honest, I'm sure it's done because if you have the access to the power, so like Alibaba or like some of those Tencent or some of those big companies, I'm, I'm sure they've done it already. Hmm. Uh, now you have some other interests in AI, like art. Is that a hobby for you? Yeah, it's the yeah, it's definitely more of a hobby. It's like just a couple of hours per week, basically. I've been creating art using different style transfer methods for a couple of years now, but I was always on the side. So what's AI art as you practice it? Yeah, so I practice basically different style transfers method. So style transfer is basically taking an input in one image and then using a particular style taught on, for example, Picasso paintings or Van Gogh paintings and then redoing the original image. So you can, for example, take a photo of your cat, give that to the machine and then repaint that cat as would Picasso do. Ah, uh, that's that's like the simplest example of what I'm doing. It's like those music examples that were popular a few years ago where you would have an AI 
play Gershwin in the style of Beethoven or something like that. And exactly, exactly. Now you can render the Mona Lisa in the style of Van Gogh. Exactly, yep. Ah, what sort of things have you done with that that you're proud of or surprised or amused by? So I tried with different pixelated arts, so like pixelating celebrities' photos. Uh, that was uh, fun. It's really a side hobby. I mean, I've done many transfers to Picasso style because apparently like, uh, Picasso style tends to be pretty interesting when you just transfer standard images like cats, dogs, or whatever, like humans in general. Yeah, there are like things like that. Also, I've been taking like older paintings of the old masters from 14th, 15th, 16th century and redoing that with Picasso. Hmm. Uh, that was pretty interesting as well. Where can we see some of these? So you can actually go to the website Aya NFT, so A-I-A-N-F-T dot com. Great, and I was just about to ask if you can market these as NFTs, but sounds like you're doing that, is that right? That's right, yeah. So basically that's what motivated me more to actually make that into collections. So I've been creating that before the NFTs, but a friend of mine sparked the conversation and basically like introduced me to the NFT space. And then I started Googling that. He bought one of the CryptoPunks. So, you know, like they were very famous recently. They were the initial NFT. They created the whole standard. Yeah. And once I discovered that and dived deeper into the space, then it made sense for me to actually try to put the artworks that I've been doing as NFTs, because it seems like a nice place for digital art, the art that is natively digital. I'll have to explain NFTs after the interviews, but for now, it's basically blockchain concepts applied to digital art. I think that the easiest way to explain that is saying that it's kind of like proof of authenticity that even digital artwork, this is the original and all the other are copies. That's mm -hmm. the easiest thing. Sure. Moving on, you've got a book out that is Artificial Intelligence Business, How You Can Profit from AI. Tell us a little about what got you into that, because that's not academic territory either. That's straight entrepreneurship. Tell us what that book covers. Yeah, sure. So the book is primarily like the overview of AI and current applications, basically written for business people, decision makers, and maybe some data scientists that want to cover, like have that broader overview from the business perspective. What got me into that is that was basically I started writing that before starting Contentize. So I was writing that back in 2019, beginning of 2020. And in general, the 2019 was the year I started to write quite a lot. I was always writing. Writing was my passion as well as reading. And this book was basically the final piece of writing that I did. And also... I used a little bit of GPT-2 at the time to generate parts of that. So that was also an experiment for me. Can I write much faster using GPT-2 and other algorithms? And the answer was yes. So actually, I like published hundreds of articles on Medium uh, using GPT-2 and other algorithms, and they went pretty well in the end. What is that experience like? As a writer, I am intrigued. I'm working on my next book myself, and... Sometimes when I type stuff into Google and it suggests the next word, the next word is a good choice and so are the next two. But this is going beyond that. What is that experience of writing with a transformer like? So it's pretty similar to actually Google suggesting you something, but it can suggest you the whole next paragraph. So the way I was working with that and I'm still working is that, especially when I'm writing intros, like writing a general description of something, because it's good that 
broader subjects and not really good at very specific, very technical things. So transformers are really good at continuing the thought you have started. And I often use it as kind of, especially when I'm blocked, thinking about where to go next from that kind of thought. It gives me possibilities for continuing that thought. So I really literally just click generate whenever I'm stuck and see what are the options. And I can edit that, continue by myself or generate more. So mm. the way it works the best is probably generating the next 100 or 200 words from the place you started. I see. Sounds good for blog posts, I would say. And Definitely, yeah. We're in a content-hungry world, so this is definitely intriguing. So talking about your book, talking about NFTs, transformers, you're on the leading edge here. So if anyone can see what's coming up next, we should be asking you, what do you see as the progress in these areas that you're familiar with in the next two years, say? It's really hard to say because basically it's hard to predict innovations because I can say the obvious thing. So GPT-4 will be coming, so bigger transformers, better models to write. That's on the AI front. But generally, I believe in the world that is working smoothly without intermediary agents, thanks to both blockchain and artificial intelligence. And what I mean by that, it won't probably happen in the next two years. It's more like five to 10. But what the blockchain allows you is basically have legitimacy and have trust. So have a way to confirm some kind of transactions in a decentralized way without needing to have a bank, without need to have lawyers. On the other hand, what artificial intelligence allows you is being able to automate and optimize certain processes that are repetitive, boring, and basically that doesn't require human creativity to go on. So altogether, if you take that together, then what I'm seeing in the future is the world where you just have a very easy way to unbound your creativity. Like humans primarily will be working with creative things or the mundane task will be taken care of by machines. But that won't happen in the next two years because the problem is in general with the point of entry is still pretty high. Mm, well, something will happen in the next two years. It's not all going to happen in the next two years, but yeah. that's an interesting pairing there of AI and blockchain because there's not conceptually a lot of overlap. One is a way of securing information and the other is a way of creating it. But you're saying that these two things together create new possibilities. And I think that you're onto something very important there. I wonder if you can say some more about, for instance, what sectors of commerce would be affected the most by using these advances in both blockchain and AI? Well, if I had to guess, probably finance would be the first. And the reason for that is we already have the huge DeFi movement, so decentralized finance. Because on one hand side, you have Many different smart contracts that allow you to save more money actually doing everything in stable coins. So you just transfer your dollars into USDT, USDC or something, and then you actually get access to saving accounts, which gives you like 6% per year, which is unheard of in a banking world. And actually it makes sense because you don't have the intermediary agents. You don't have to rent real estate for the banks. You don't have to hire bank clerks and so on. On the other hand, you also have the same kind of revolution on the startup front with all the fintechs. You have a lot of startups that are using AI to actually maybe suggest you the optimal portfolio for stocks or like suggest you how you can save more money. And 
I see the way like you could probably connect the two and that would be the, the first like real connection. You could probably make some kind of a DeFi that's at the same time a fintech powered by AI. A lot of buzzwords, but uh, <laughs> if something is going to happen on the verge of blockchain artificial intelligence that is significant, probably the first thing would be in the finance world because that's where the money is literally. And where do you see content lives going in the next couple of years? I just want to make writing as easy as possible for anyone. So my end goal for content is having a platform that allows you to write really easy. So have a tool for basically anyone. So a little bit like Canva for writing. So I don't know if you use Canva. I really like Canva for like presentations because, you know, like I don't have any graphical background, but actually Canva allows me to create presentations really quickly. And they're looking really well compared to the fact that I don't have this background. And I would like to do exactly the same thing for writing, which means that content or just written words is the primary way we communicate. And I would like to have a tool that would allow people to write and have the average level of the written text much higher. So that if even you, you have any kind of dyslexia or if you can't write, for one reason or the other, Contentize would help you to get better content. It would uh, uh, make your grammar better. It would write in the style you wanted to write. So it's like a Photoshop for language. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Photoshop for writing, basically. Oh, well, I must have a, a look at this. I'm still probably behind the times in my writing techniques. It's why it's taking so long to get this next book out. All right, Shamik, thank you very much for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure having you here. For people that are thinking, wow, this is so cool. First of all, they want to find out more about what you're doing. Where do they go to do that? Mm, either Twitter or LinkedIn. I think that's, I'm happy to connect with people on LinkedIn or just follow me on Twitter. That's super easy. Great. We'll put your handles there. And then for people who are also young, starting out in this field, maybe they're in academia or they're thinking, how do I get a leg up in that space? Do I need a PhD in pure mathematics? Maybe they're working on one and they're thinking, maybe I want to make the jump as well. What would you advise people who are trying to consider their options at that stage of their career development? I think the best advice is just going out and trying to do things, even on the side. Especially in the beginning, you don't have to be 100% into something. You can do something as a side hustle, in a way, just to try it. That was the way I was quitting academia. Like Quitting academia literally took me like three years to really do it properly. And just because I was scared. It's normal to be scared, I guess, especially if you're making these huge changes. So going with small steps one at a time and just learning something every day is probably the best thing you can do. But learning and trying things is the best. I think that's really illustrating just how accessible this technology is now. If you were in computing 40 years ago, you had to be at a place where they would give you access to this giant machine in an air-conditioned room that cost several million dollars. And, and if you didn't have that, then you weren't going to get to play. Now you can do it a large amount of it for nothing. That's not to say that people aren't spending millions of dollars training transformers, but you can still do so much as a researcher to develop a career without spending any of that, correct? Yeah, that's correct. So for example, Google is great here because there's something called Google Collaboratory, which is like Jupyter Notebook working on Google Cloud. And they're giving you access for free, like a small GPU of like, I think, 12 gigabytes of RAM, which is fine for some applications. And it's really great. You wouldn't think that possible like a couple of years ago. And 
literally people are writing papers using Google Collaboratory and you don't have to pay anything to do research. Also, you can go on YouTube. There are many videos about different machine learning stuff or whatever technology you're interested in. You can go on Coursera. You can audit courses for free. I think that's like the best tip I could get is that any course on Coursera, you can go and audit for free, which means that you won't get a certificate, but you will be able to see all the content of all the videos. And that's amazing. Like you can literally get knowledge from Stanford, Harvard and other universities for free. All right. So that was Google Collaboratory, which lets you write and execute Python in your browser, uh, kind of like a Jupyter notebook, kind of. Yeah, exactly. It's it's a Jupyter notebook on Google, but even with the worst laptop or whatever computer you're using, you have access to Google's GPUs. And that's like Mm. the best thing for free. You don't have to pay anything. These are great tips, people. If you're waiting to get started on this, just go out there, look for Google Colab, start learning Python for free from Coursera and other places. Universities have put their courses online and you can get started in this stuff. Yeah. Shemek, thanks for helping us understand that. Thanks for all of the information you've given us. And good luck with your art, your writing, and your business. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. That's the end of the interview. I think Shemek's experience with Contentize illustrates how the field for narrow AI is exploding in this gold rush where people can claim a space like text content generation and rapidly establish a commanding presence. There are so many possible applications of narrow AI that could be equally transformative. It really demonstrates what Kevin Kelly said about how the model for the next 10,000 startups would be to, quote, take X and add AI. We talked about NFTs in the interview, which are a total fad within computing right now. They're like some bratty YouTuber covered in tattoos busting onto the red carpet at the Emmys and bragging about their ratings. But let me explain what they are. NFT stands for non-fungible token. I know that doesn't help. A token is a chunk of data and fungible means capable of being changed into something else. So a non-fungible token means that this is a piece of data that can't be altered. And the way that gets used is, well, it's something like that meme about telling someone 50 years in the past that, hey, you have this device in your pocket that can connect to anyone in the world and access any piece of information, and you use it for looking at pictures of cats and arguing with strangers. Because NFTs are used to establish an ownership of digital information, just like the blockchain establishes ownership of some amount of cryptocurrency. NFTs use cryptographic protocols and the blockchain to record that you own, say, this image that someone photoshopped of you dancing with Marilyn Monroe and then sold to you, which they will sell for a ridiculous price because the people who pay for these things generally have more money than they know what to do with, which is how come Grimes, singer and Elon Musk's girlfriend, was able to get $6 million selling digital videos that are, well, creative, also weird, They have images of cherubs floating around a monolith covered in butterflies, don't ask, and have an original song by Grimes as the audio track. Let's not get into whether they're worth that. But you may be asking how come information, ones and zeros, could be owned by anyone when ones and zeros can be copied. You can watch, you can download those videos, and you have exactly what the person who anted up $6 million has. 
And by the way, that's nowhere near the most expensive NFT ever sold. It's not like the Mona Lisa, which there's only one of and cannot be copied, and you can only see it in one place. So what's the point? The point, and it's a very small point, is that the blockchain has recorded that the buyer of those digital videos is the owner of them, and we all decide to agree that that is the case, and that the blockchain provides an irrefutable record that they are the owner. So they have bragging rights. The record of their ownership cannot be changed because it's on the blockchain. And the cryptographic signature applied to the actual digital video ensures that the record is tied to that exact video itself and cannot be copied on the blockchain. You can do this with anything. For instance, Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey tweeted a link to a tokenized version of the first tweet ever written, where he wrote, quote, just setting up my Twitter, end quote. Yes, that was all of it. And the NFT sold for $3 million. If you're underwhelmed, join the club. I spared you some of the even more ludicrous applications like crypto kitties, which I refuse to explain. This is the latest way for Hollywood types to show that they have too much money. Maybe one day it will be used for something more meaningful, like establishing title to your house. But now you know what an NFT is. By the way, on the last episode, I wasn't quite correct in what I said about Volkswagen and their cheating on the smog tests. There was deception, deliberate deception, but rather than lie about their emissions, which isn't meaningful because the emissions are measured externally, they programmed the cars to detect when they were on an emissions test stand and then changed the engine mode to one that reduced emissions at the cost of performance, which no one cares about or even notices on a test stand. In today's news ripped from the headlines about AI, Google Maps, hands up everyone who uses Google Maps to tell you how to get from one place to another, is improving the accuracy of its prediction of when you'll get there through AI. It's already 97% accurate, using a combination of historical traffic patterns and live traffic conditions to understand current traffic patterns. But that's not good enough for Google. They want to understand future traffic patterns. If you think about, say, Planning a drive from Bakersfield, California, to San Diego, leaving at 5 o'clock in the morning, the traffic conditions in Orange County are going to be rather different by the time you get there, so a prediction based on the current conditions will be off. So, Google is using graph neural networks from DeepMind AI, which also considers data on the time of year, road quality, speed limits, accidents, and closures, this has increased accuracy by up to 50% in places like Berlin, Jakarta, Sao Paulo, Sydney, Tokyo, and Washington, D.C. This technique is what enables Google Maps to better predict whether or not you'll be affected by a slowdown that may not have even started yet. In next week's episode, I'll be talking with Charles Radcliffe, a serial entrepreneur who has focused his career on solving tough technology challenges for some of the world's largest organizations and was until recently head of AI at Fidelity International. That's next week on AI and You. Until then, remember, no matter how much computers learn how to do, it's how we come together as humans that matters. That's all for this episode of AI and You. Please leave a rating and comment and share with your friends. Get the book Crisis of Control and see more videos and articles at AINU.net. That's A-I-A-N-D-Y-O-U.net, where you can also send us your questions. Thank you for listening.